I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. Let me take a minute and tell you about Zencaster, the company I've recorded with for over two years. I also use Zencaster to publish my podcast, and I can use them for editing everything a podcaster needs to create a podcast. Podcasting grew exponentially in 2021 and 2022, and it's not slowing down. In fact, podcasting advertising was the fastest growing channel in 2021. Why am I telling you this? If you're interested in investing in Zencaster, go to wefunder.com slash Zencaster or click the link in my episode description to claim your slice of the future of podcasting. 15% of all active podcast creators, including me, are already using Zencaster. Go to wefunder.com slash Zencaster. Zencaster is spelled Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. There's no E at the end. Thank you. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. She doesn't know this, but Janine Latis had more influence on me setting out to write the When Dating Hurts book than anyone. That's because when I read her book, which is entitled if I am missing or dead, and is around 300 pages, and I read it in two days, I felt inspired to write my book at that time. Janine has been called the most compelling speaker on sexual assault I have ever heard. I agree with that. She is an award-winning journalist, an engaging speaker about sexual assault and intimate partner violence. I could go on and on. You can learn more about Janine at JanineLatis.com. I've been working up to having someone of your stature on this podcast, and without any more intro, here you are. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm sorry that we're both qualified to be here. Yes, that's a brilliant way to put that. Thank you very much. Janine, if you could just roll the calendar back and take us to your earliest memories growing up with your sisters and your parents, and tell us where things started so we have a good basis for where things were and then where they went. Unfortunately, I think there is a line that's pretty straightforward between where they started and where they went. I was raised in a fairly traditional 1960s, 1970s home, and my father was quite dominant, and my father was quite hypersexualizing at all times. What does that mean, hypersexualizing? It means that he would say things like, you know, your chest is so flat we can iron clothes on it. Mm, yes, I've heard that type of thing before. You would say, you know, you'd see like somebody like Mary Lou Retton or Nadia Comaneci performing those amazing gymnastics moves. And he would watch and he would say, God, she's flat. Mm. He said to one of my high school teachers, if I told you you had a beautiful body, would you hold it against me? Pretty humiliating when you're the kid. Yes, that would change the entire dynamic of teacher, student. Yeah. And teach your parents really everything. Yeah. 
It really does. He used to uh, pull my class, not my classmates, my teammates down on his lap and like rub himself against them. So these were your gymnastics teammates, were they? Yeah. Even when we were in high school, he would do that. I mean, the, the women now still mention it to me. Um, it was just, he was just, it was just ubiquitous. The, everything about that, all we had to offer was our sexuality. That's who we were, regardless of how brilliant or talented we were. Well, what kind of a house did he grow up in? I mean, there must have been some background in this, right? Some history, something that he saw or learned? There's no reason to believe that he saw it in his home. He's got six six or seven brothers and sisters. Nobody else is like this at all. And they've always all been appalled by him. Did you ever get to the point where you heard something from someone in the family that that this is where this entered his mind and became part of him? There's been some speculation that, you know, a visiting uncle at some point may have done something. Okay. But that's everybody kind of speculating, trying to come up with a reason for him to have become how he was. Hmm. Yeah. So that's your father. Did you ever get the sense that your mother knew this was going on when this was happening around you or to you? You know, he would, he would, there are pictures of him at the country club with his arm around another woman, but his arms all the way around and he's feeling her, her breast. And, you know, my mom was there and he, he was always, and he would mock her, you know, you, you couldn't find your way out of a paper bag. You can't take a photograph to save your life. You know, your singing sounds like a braying donkey. I mean, it was just insult after insult after insult. But you have to remember, it was an era when my mom could not get a credit card in her own name yet. Yes, that follows. You probably didn't yeah. have any credit at all at that time. She hadn't established credit. Right. And you couldn't work outside the home without your spouse's permission. And for a woman to work was to imply that the man could not support the family. So as much as we want to say, you know, why didn't she do this or that, because society wasn't letting her do this or that. It's like she was incarcerated in her own home. Right. Which, by the way, without without jumping out of the timeline, when she broke free, she took off like a skyrocket. It Good. was awesome to see. That was yeah. all there the whole time then. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, dad's looking kind of rough in this story, sadly. Did he ever have his day with you? Kind of like his day in court with you where you sat down with him and said, Dad, you didn't present yourself very well. Or is that one of those things in life where you say, you know, don't touch it, just just leave it alone? We had the conversation and we had letters back and forth. And then later when my book came out, he wrote me a letter that said I was a latest and I was supposed to have a sense of humor. Oh. That I was exaggerating, that I was imagining things. Yeah. It's like you mistook it. Basic gaslighting 101. I've been on the verge of saying the word gaslighting yeah. here for yeah. maybe about two minutes. Yeah. Is he still among the living at this point? He is not. He is not. Okay. Uh, how about your mother? Mom is not only living, but I'll see her for Christmas in a couple of days. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I know you're yeah. not supposed to ask a woman's age, but how old is your mother? 87 and 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 rocking it. She's just rocking it. Good. She's got a lot yeah. of mileage yeah. left. Which means I have a lot of mileage left, which I think is great news. It's like when I speak at the 40-year anniversary of a domestic violence shelter. On one hand, it's thank you for doing this for 40 years, and on the other hand, it's 
why do we still have to do this for 40 years, you know? Do you think there's more of it or do you think it's just that more people are reporting? You must have thought about that one. I've thought of it many times and I think that there is probably less of it in that women can now get a job and leave. Because, you know, one of the things we saw during the pandemic is that people couldn't even get out to make a phone call to get help. Yes. So as people are isolated and lose their options, abuse and domestic violence soar. Yes, it did. Absolutely. You throw in some cold weather, you throw in some COVID, all the shelter in place that we experienced back then. Yeah. They had to go someplace. They couldn't be home. They can't be home with some guy that can't even go to work. Yeah. And there's more financial stress. And increased stress leads to increased, you know, conflict within a couple. Yes, of course. So let's go back to your story, if you don't mind. Okay. So when I was 12, I was tiny. I was like five foot tall, 90 pounds. And I was babysitting for a neighbor. And I was playing, uh, I was a monster. I was a tickle monster. And I was chasing the kids around the house. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And I finally got them. And we're rolling around on the floor, giggling and laughing. And the dad came in and he said, I wonder if the babysitter's ticklish. Oh, that's an entree. Yeah. And he pinned me down and he started grinding himself into me and I could not figure out how to get away from him. Is he laying on top of you at this time? What's he doing? Oh, yes. 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 And I'm little and I'm stuck underneath him and he's aroused. Oh, my God. And he's um, intending to do what he's intending to do. And his children are there. Oh. And I got away from him by when my dad would get mad at me, he'd yank the little hairs on the back of my neck. So I did this to the guy and that's how I got free. But the thing is, they came home a couple of hours later and I had to ride in the car with the guy. He took you home? Yeah, because the mom said, Oh God. Huh. I said I'd walk home. And she said, your mother will kill me if I let you walk. That's so bad. So I had to get in the car with this guy. Yeah. And you wanted to say, my mother might kill you, but you have no idea what your husband might do to me. Right. Exactly. Except she probably did because They probably went through babysitters like crazy. Oh, yeah. We know of at least seven girls in the neighborhood that he did something to. Oh, my God. But So here's part of why he was able to do it. What a predator. Oh, gosh, yes. So I rode home and he, the guy, said to me, we're never going to tell anyone what we did. Oh, Will right. Be. You would be complicit at that point. Right. Because we did it. Yeah. And so the first thing I did was I told. I ran upstairs, mom, dad. And mom looked at dad and I looked at dad. And my father said, never tell anyone or they'll know you're a slut. Good handling of that one. So you know, for the rest of your life, you have to keep such things secret. What a burden. But the thing is, is that when they have- Horrible burden. Yeah. So when they've interviewed convicted rapists, which is a very small pool of people because most people never get convicted. Oh. They found that they had raped an average of eight times before they were caught. Now, is that eight times so, or is that eight people? Well, all I know what I read was what I read. Yeah. And so you're looking at somebody like my dad saying, don't tell anybody. So after that, the guy goes and he sexually assaults Karen down the street and then he sexually assaults Colleen. You know, because all of our parents were saying, don't tell anybody. And I'm telling you, I'm pretty sure my father was protecting him at least as much as he was trying to protect my, quote, reputation. And of course, his reputation, because being the father of a, quote, slut would have been a bad thing. This whole story is a piece of work. 
he's a piece of work. It's just so horrible, and I've heard so many stories, and this does have some similarities of how this becomes this enabling way to go so that everybody else besides you doesn't have a problem in life. That's the way it goes. So you can carry the entire burden of what someone else did to you, totally unsolicited in any way. I also need to tell you, Bill, that there are generations of victims who have never told anybody. Oh, I'm sure they'll carry it to the grave, sure. Uh, yeah, so my mother and I were in a vehicle. She was probably 75 at the time, and she told me a story. She told me that when she was a little girl, she was walking down the alleyway between her parents' house and her grandparents' house, and the neighbor boys dragged her into a garage, and she said, I wouldn't say they raped me exactly, but they did everything but, and I've never told anyone. That's nightmarish, living a nightmare. Yeah. When I think of violent things that have happened to me in my life, and they're not in the same ballpark as any of the things you're talking about, and yet what happened to me, I still relive them at times. I still go back to when in elementary school or high school, some kid hit me or somebody bullied me, some fight on a bus or whatever happened. And I go back and I think, wow, that was so bad and banging into the seats. And this is a thimble full compared to an ocean of misery that these people just like great saints just carry through their entire lives. They feel like they can't tell anybody or they've been told they can't tell anybody and they're just flat out stuck with it. It's just Yeah. That's why if you've ever seen me in my work attire, I wear a t-shirt that says we need to talk. Because the idea that what happens in the home stays in the home, that's getting us killed. That's letting perpetrators get away with things. But I also tell you I will wear that shirt through an airport and people veer out of the way. <laughs> we need to talk. No. <laughs> Anything but that. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we got you to twelve. Where do we go from there? Well, I left home while I was in high school because... In high school, you, what, 16, 17 then? It was the day I turned 18, which would be in early December of my senior year. Okay. So I only had half a year left. You left home. You physically packed up and left. I left home and I lived in a Garden View apartment with another high school girl. Garden View means you're half underground. Don't let them kid you. And the view is really the undercarriage of the cars in the parking lot. You just left. I had said many times, the minute I turn 18, I'm out of here. Okay. And I turned 18 and I left. Gave a good warning. I will give them credit. They didn't stop me. And I will take credit away from them. They banned my siblings from speaking to me. Oh, okay. And that was particularly hard because, you know, I probably needed support more right that moment than any other time in my life. And it was pulled. Now, did they comply with that desire? <laughs> it's very funny. Um, you can't see it behind me, but there's this pair of pink beanbag lips that are like the size of a... Oh, I have seen that type of thing. Yeah. Yes. So my uh, little sister made them for me, and she had written on that, I love you no matter where you are. And she had gotten off the bus at the high school and stuck it in the mailbox of my favorite teacher and then run all the way to the junior high to be at class on time. And so then my teacher called me aside and said that there's something for you. And that's when the teachers found out that I wasn't living at home anymore. Oh, oh, yeah. this is your sister, Jane? This is my sister, Amy, my youngest sister, the youngest one. Oh, okay. 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 So you're 18. You're living alone. Right. And the drinking age in Michigan is 18. And my roommate and I go to the Green Door Disco 
we are dancing to Abba's Dancing Queen, Young and Sweet, Barely 17. Oh, yeah. I was thinking about that song. As soon as you said Dancing Queen, yeah, I got that. But there's honestly a line that says, you're a teaser, you turn him on. And you don't pay attention to the lyrics until you pay attention to the lyrics. Oh. Yeah. Have you had that happen with other songs, by the way? With what? Have you had that happen before where you have some song, you kind of like it, and then life circumstances change and it takes on a whole new meaning? Yes, of course. Or every move you make, every step you take, I'll be watching you. Stalking. That one just makes me shudder. Remember the Rolling Stones song, Under My Thumb? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there you go. Yeah, right. So I said to her, I'm ready to go home. And she said, okay, I'll catch a ride. And so I get into my white Pinto with the orange top, very fancy car, drive home and I park my car and I run down the steps to my door and I open the storm door and I put the key in the lock and a hand hits me on the back of the head. A guy had followed me home from the bar and he smacked my head against the door and he dragged me inside and he raped me. Oh, oh my God. I'm so sorry. On a cheap coffee table with really sharp edges. And so my back was all torn up. And when my roommate got home, she found me curled up in a ball on the floor and she helped me into the bathtub and she washed me off and she put methylate on each of those little wounds. And if you remember how much that stings, it's mm-hmm. insane. And we swore we'd never tell anybody because we'd gotten separated. We'd been flirting, we'd been drinking, we'd been you know, dancing. And I couldn't ID the guy. Oh, my God. You probably never got a look at him, did you? Not really. Yeah. And if I went public, everybody would know I was a slut. What does that say about you? Yeah. Yeah. What an education you're having. Yeah. Oh. But I am very fortunate to be resilient. Clearly. And I finished high school and I finished college. And I went to graduate school. So that was good. It's very good. Very good. And I met a guy. Met a guy. Yeah. I hope this gets better. It gets better. He was handsome. And he was a med student, so he was smart. Okay. And he had a trust fund, which I was a grad student. I was really poor. So anybody who had any money was great. Is that from grandparents or parents? It could have been from either. There was a, it was generational. Okay. All right. Yeah. Generational wealth. And that Thanksgiving, we went to his parents' house, like this McMansion with this golf course for a lawn. And we go in and he and his father go into the study for some scotch. And I'm given an apron. Oh, (laughs) see, we say that, but how many Thanksgivings do you see the men go watch football and the women go clean up the kitchen? I mean, we still do that at a very large extent. And so the presumption was that I was going to help. And so we got all that great food out and we we put it on the dining room table and everything was perfect. And then she said, you can go get the men. And my boyfriend pulled my chair out for me, you know, smooth the linen napkin on your lap. Father says the blessing over the bounty. And then he stops and he says, where the fuck are the yams? picks up the turkey, and he throws it at his wife. 
And it's clearly not the first time because she ducks and it slides down the wall and he storms back to the study. And my boyfriend says, help her. And he follows his dad. I was so humiliated for her, but I was also just so shocked, just shocked. Who talks that way? Who throws food? You're an adult. Like, what are you doing throwing a, a turkey? Yeah. So she and I scooped <laughs> it up. Oh, what are you supposed to do with that? It's exactly what happened. Are you supposed to put it back together and do a second take at this? Is that the plan? Exactly. Not a word. Oh, oh really? Not a word is spoken? You know, since my book came out, I've been shocked by how many people have been at tables where somebody flung food. Kind of tradition. A major piece of food, not like flicked a pea at somebody, but through the whole pan of mashed potatoes, you know? <laughs> it's been it's been too eye-opening uh. to be on this journey. So anyway, I did the thing that we all do when we're of a certain age. Uh, I decided I could fix him. It's an amazing thing, but... There's a classic structure here, and you're filling out the structure. So I want to hear that part. I mean, how you failed at fixing him. I mean, it's true. I actually want people to understand what you're saying there, that that it's almost a template. There are certain behaviors. That's exactly yeah. what I call it. I call it the template every abuser follows. Yeah. And I haven't seen or heard of anybody deviate from it. Right. So Mild variations. Yeah. Slight mm -hmm. changes in order of events, but yeah. It's the same mannequin. We just put on different clothes. Tell us about your journey about trying to turn this guy around. Well, so I did everything right. I mean, I loved him. I loved him so much. And I would build him up and I would praise him. But then every once in a while, I would do something awful like burn the broccoli. And, you know, now the house is going to smell like burnt broccoli. And that's, you know, worthy of loud chastisement, as we say. Anyway, so um, remember the, um, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Trust fund. That's right. We have to get Trust back fund. to that connection. Yeah. So we went on a ski trip and he paid for everything, lift tickets, flights, you know, and we're out skiing and we stop for lunch and we have a beer and we are skiing some more and we stop and have another beer and, you know, get groggy. So we're going to go take a nap. And so we go back to the hotel room. And I did it. I said the wrong thing. And the, the first fist hit me in the face. And the second one hit me in the gut. And I fell down. And he started kicking me. And he kicked me and he kicked me. And then he fell down next to me. And he was sobbing, just sobbing. And he, he grabbed me in his arms. And he said, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. I am so sorry you made me do that. Oh, ugh. and I had to stay with him for three days. Ugh. And the thing is, is ugh. my uncle Tony lived about five miles away with my seven cousins. Uncle Tony would have taken care of it if I had called Uncle Tony. But again, I was too ashamed. Because we've got to address the shame part about this, that I chose somebody who would hit me, that I said the wrong thing, that I, you know, was now a battered woman. I'm not going to go tell my uncle that. I mean, it's too embarrassing. For sure. There's all kinds of, all kinds of things will come out of that. Yeah. I mean, you'll unleash all those different demons and you already have a big one to start with. Do you have any idea what you said to him before you got hit? I do not. Okay. 
And it was probably something rather benign. Uh, sure. Right. It was so insignificant that I can't remember what it was. Just one more thing than he wanted to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. And you know, I've, I've, over the years I've heard, you know, you know better, or I was joking, or where's your sense of humor, or you're exaggerating, or you're overreacting. It's never, you're right, I shouldn't tailgate, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, even, do you want to drive? Because, yeah. So anyway. That's amazing stuff. Go ahead. I had to stay with him for three days. And again, shame. Were you skiing or doing anything that resembled that before the punches during those few days? Or was it like like we're in separate parts of, um, of the chalet, the resort? We're, we're in the same hotel room together. I mean, are we to an outsider looking like everything's fine? Or are we in two corners of the room watching each other? I couldn't go out in public. I had a broken nose and black eyes and broken broken ribs. Oh no. God, that's so yeah. bad. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I'm so sorry. It was bad. This guy really hit you hard. Oh my well, god, that that's horrible. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, um so we get to the airport and the gate attendant calls me up and asks me if I'm okay. Mm. And I said that I skied into a tree. Mm. And she said, "Honey, We've all been there. I can help you. And again, I was too embarrassed. She knew it wasn't any tree. Right. I would never. I'm dumb enough to run into a tree, but I am. would never let anybody hit me. No, I'm telling you, it was an accident on the slopes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so you get on a plane, you come back and... Well, first of all, Bill, can you imagine flying with your sinuses full of blood? It's really painful. Your ears can't clear. I mean, it's super painful. It's weird. It, it's it's an age. It's not a traumatic thing. You know, being hit is traumatic. Feeling pain is not particularly traumatic, but I do remember it really clearly. Yeah. So uh, when I got back, I called my little sister, Amy. It was one of those conversations where we were blathering about all kinds of stuff. And then I finally said, you know, he hit me. And she said, what? I told her I my nose is broken. I got black eyes. I think my ribs are broken. And she said, well, you broke up with him, right? And I said, and I said, no, no, we've been drinking. You know what his parents are like, you know what a pain in the neck I am. And she went silent on me. And then she said, are you going to wait until he kills you? That's what everybody would say. Right. Like, what more do you need? Yeah. Yeah. Stunning words. Just stunning words. Oh, those are oftentimes last words, aren't they? And the irony coming from her. Yeah. Anyway, with her help, I did. I got out. And so from meeting him to you're done with him and you're away from him, how much time would you say? I would be guessing at this point, but it's about a year and a half. I mean, it was a sustained relationship. It wasn't, we hadn't just met and then he hurt me. Right. Yeah. Were there other incidents of him hitting you? There must have been. There were, there were. And there were also other, but you know, they were all little things like he just happened to shove me so that I fell back on the coffee table or, you know, he just, he just happened to grab my arm such that he left bruises on, you know, how soft the underarm is. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. 
you know, he, he fixed me. I mean, when we'd come home from a party, he'd tell me, you know, your jokes aren't funny. So I learned not to tell jokes. And, you know, you laugh like a hyena. So I learned not to laugh. And I. So you had all the do's and don'ts. You had the whole playlist. Yes. And I was corrected constantly what I wore, who I talked to, how I talked. How you cut your hair, maybe? Um, that was non. Makeup? I don't know. It was mostly clothing. Huh. And, and with him, I will say he didn't. He wanted me to look sharp, but he didn't necessarily need me to look super sexy. That was that was a later gift from someone else. Okay. Do you think the part about that, about looking sexy, that somehow you might become attractive to other guys and then you might want to go away? Was that Yeah, it? and I'm pretty sure actually that's what happened to my sister Amy. When she was married for a while, he encouraged significant weight gain. And it was only when she uh, was getting ready to leave him that she lost a ton of weight. Did you make it through a second Thanksgiving? Or is that the only one that you had to enjoy and experience? That was the only one I got to enjoy in that way. In the, okay. The flying food. Yeah, the flying turkey. Yeah. So Amy was a really big support as I got out. And I would call her in the middle of the night and I'd call her in the morning and I'd ugly cry, you know, Pretty much very few people can you sound that ugly to, but she was really good about it. Ugly cry. Yeah. How's that go? There's a lot of snot involved and oh. sobbing and inability to get the sentence out because you're, you know, it takes a lot of patience. I mean, like you can only get out one word yeah. at a time, yeah. then a breath, then a word and a breath. Yeah. Yeah. No oh kidding. Oh my God. No Great kidding. Sister. So you get away from this guy. Is there some clear sailing for you? Unfortunately, no. I did what a lot of victims do, and I fell for the person who was kind to me afterward. Oh, okay. Hmm. So someone comes in, and they believe you, and they take your side, and so you share your vulnerabilities with that person, and they show you how much they love you. I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase love bomb. Yes, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> So the love bombing hits where they're just ladling the love on you. You're just the most wonderful thing ever. And they'll always be there for you. And they just adore you. And, you know, lots of physical intimacy involved. And just just the kind of in love that you see in movies. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. happened. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. And you think all of that was an act to kind of bring you in? No, I'm not even sure he recognized it as an act. I think that... Do you think it served some higher purpose rather than an honest purpose? Right. Higher purpose makes it sound exalted. Maybe an ulterior purpose. Right. No. It, it sounds like it was kind of a good thing, but it's not. But I mean, do you think it was sort of a, however it got there, kind of an entrapment situation? Exactly. And they always do. You know that, you know? Because it's like he got to learn all of your vulnerabilities so he's got that right. on his dashboard. He can use that if he wants. You know, I think I mentioned earlier that my father used to say, your chest is so flat you could iron clothes on it. Yes. So my husband started in on, I know it bothers you. I know it bothers you. Huh. I know you'd feel better about yourself if you had implants. I know you would feel sure. better. Yeah. 
And he kept saying, I can make that happen. I can do that for you. I can write the check. And eventually I had my body cut open so that he would like me better. Oh God. I did it. And I uh, regret it deeply. And there are readers or people who have heard me give speeches who talk about, you know, some of them talk about how, no, they wanted it and they're happy about it. And others are, are like, you know, he insisted or I, and my ex-husband actually subsequently married someone 20 years younger. And within a month of their wedding, she had had it done too. Yeah. Yeah. So he would, you know, I have such gorgeous legs that it would be better if I wore a shorter dress and maybe a shorter dress and maybe a tighter dress and maybe a push-up bra and maybe stiletto heels. And then maybe, you know, think about this. On one hand, he's being seen with this eye candy and that raises his status. But I'm walking into the grocery or the hardware store and the helpful hardware man is a very helpful hardware man. And I'm up all night with that finger in my chest. You want him. Are you, did you go behind the lumber? Did you go behind the tools? What did you do? Did you give him your number? I would be accused all night long. And there's only so many ways you can deny anything. You know, one day he was going to work and he, well, so I want you to understand this and I want your readers or your listeners to understand this. Abusive relationships are high drama. They're very mm-hmm. spiky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're, when they're at their best, that you're just madly in love and it's glorious and it's wonderful. And you have Christmas with your children and you coach little league and you know, you go on vacation and then you do the wrong thing. You say the wrong thing and you get back to the bottom of that, that Valley and you're scrambling to get back up. Like I want to be back in that in love part and there's makeup sex and there's flowers and there's dinner out and it's wonderful. And so there are times in an abusive relationship where everything does feel fabulous and you can persuade yourself that the insulting, the belittling, the the surveillance, the occasional physicality um, will never happen again. Mm -hmm. Sure. You can convince yourself of that. And so, yeah. So on this one particular day, I was standing at the front door waiting to wave goodbye to him. And he went down to the garage and he, you know, backs out. He's going to go to work. And he pulls out onto the street Mm. and I'm standing there waving. And all of a sudden he slaps it into reverse and he fishtails back up the driveway. And I know I'm in trouble and I know he's coming through that door and I know I've done something wrong and I cannot figure what it is. And he comes storming down the hall and I'm getting smaller and he's getting bigger and I don't know what it is. And he rips open the door and he says, who sent them? And on the stoop Mm. is a, orange glass vase with a sleeve of yellow grocery store roses in it. And he grabs it and he's pawing through it and he's saying, who sent it? Who sent it? And I'm thinking, I have no idea. Like, did I talk to somebody at the gym? Did I talk to one of the little league dads? What, you know, what did I do? I know I must talk to somebody. And he's yelling at me and he's, you know, he's going on and on and on. And then it makes him late for work. And so he says to me, call him and tell him it's your fault. And I did. By the way, who sent them? I'll tell you in a second. Okay. <laughs> okay. I call work and I tell them that I had run out of gas. 
and then he was late because of me of course. because I don't want them to know that this is how he behaves because it's so different from his public face. Oh, I'm sure he's a great guy at work. Everybody's friend, very helpful, yep. generous and yep. patient. Very, mm-hmm. yeah. very, yes. And, you know, a great dad in public, the whole. And then you, you later are, you know, exaggerating or making it up because that nice man could never have done this. Mm-hmm. He's no Jekyll and Hyde. So the, the vase, this couple we knew who were friends had gotten married to each other and moved into the same house. And they had this vase that they didn't want. And they said, Ooh, I'll bet Janine would love it. And they put it on the porch for me as a happy surprise. Wow. Couldn't be much more innocent than that. Could you? No, especially since the man of the couple was actually my husband's business partner. So, I mean, like not my, didn't come in from my side of the relationship, but later I told the man what had happened and how angry my husband had been. Yeah. Because I was, I I was at the end, I was getting close to the end and the man, he, he started crying for real to have caused that for real. (laughs) And so I immediately Uh. said, Hey, it wasn't that bad. I'm, I'm, I'm overreacting. It wasn't that bad. Uh. Like you take, you've internalized all the crap. You wind up in the job of taking all the pain, all the agony, and then filtering it or changing it, and then giving it back like nothing ever happened or whatever happened was so tiny, kind of forgot about it, you know. At what point could you go to this man and say, look, this is what really happened. I mean, was that after the fact, like years later? Or you're out of there and you just have no relationship at all? No, it was before It was before I was out of there. It was close to the end because I told, you know. Because at that point, you had nothing to lose telling him. Yeah, except that I did because I felt awful because now he thinks ill of me and my husband, who is his business partner. And still was. Yeah. So I felt really bad about that. Well, you know, it's got to be a temptation. You're never going to get even, but to at least let a little bit of it out that you need to know this guy is not quite the guy you think he is. Yeah, that and give me some support, some sympathy, you know, tell me I don't deserve it. Because I was pretty for sure I deserved it at that point. You know, because I was all the inadequacies that he kept saying I was. I want you to know that in the, what has it been, uh, 20-some years since I got out, I've had a very full and successful life. And all of those inadequacies aren't enough to make me an unworthy human being, you know? But hearing them constantly, you do you do internalize quite a bit. You start to buy into it. Yeah. And God forbid that that you do drop something in your house. It's like, oh my God, that's what he's talking about. You're almost looking at times to understand if it's true or or get glimpses of maybe, you know, maybe maybe I'm not who I thought I could have been or what I thought I used to be. Maybe he's right. Yeah. And like one of the things I internalized is that, you know, every time I interacted with a man, I mean, I give I give him credit that he loved me so much that he was terrified that he would lose me. Uh-huh. And so if I would talk to a man, okay, that's what he says it was, but it could have just been controlling behavior, you know, generic. But every time I would talk to a man, he would be afraid that I was going to leave him. And so mm-hmm. he would say, mm-hmm. you know, he just wants to F you. He j- that was the constant message. I would have an accomplishment. Like I got on national public radio and he said, the editor just wants to F you. It was, it was constant. That's all I was. Remember? Yes. 
That's where your qualifications ended. Right. But remember, this is an echo of my dad. Yes, that's who I'm hearing through this. Sure. Right, right. Once you had the first opportunity to show everything you really had all along, you really nailed it times 100. I mean, that's what I love about your story because I know where it's going. He didn't want me talking to men, so my world got smaller. And then, you know, your girlfriends, they're just a bunch of man haters. And then family, we're family now. If your partner makes your life smaller, you're not with the right partner. Very good. That's, you know, your partner's supposed to help you blossom into the fullest version of yourself. Yes. They're not supposed to make your life small and they're not supposed to give yes. fear in your life. Yeah. But then, you know, then I would see an attractive man and being a human being, I would know this attractive man. And then I'd be like, oh my God, you're flirting. Like it, 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 it's like tentacles into your brain. Yeah. It's like every time you see an attractive guy, you think, stay away from that. Yeah. Yeah. Mayday, mayday. But, you know. Yes. Run from attractive men. That was your, your mantra. Yeah. You didn't want it, but you got it. Yes. But at about the same time, my sister Amy had met her cowboy. Amy was five years younger and whip smart. And, you know, she has divorced from her first husband and she had lost 85 pounds as 85 pounds and had she and I had met somewhere and she led the hike, which, you know, a year prior had, would have been impossible for her. And she had gotten her, her job. She worked for the Kimberly Clark Corporation, which makes ironically Kleenex. Mm -hmm. And um, she had gotten her job to move her job from Atlanta to Knoxville, Tennessee, because she wanted to go to graduate school. So she's got her job moved. She gets into graduate school. She's going to graduate school. She applies for a mortgage and gets it in her own name. Oh. And, you know, she's rocking. And then she meets this guy. And he's got a cowboy hat and cowboy boots and a big rodeo belt buckle, which we later found out was, you know, bought off the internet. And a big gold chain around his neck with a, with a gold cross on it. Oh, religious. Uh, sure. At least whoever made it or originally bought it. Yeah. So uh, he left her love notes. And Amy hadn't gotten a lot of love notes in her life. So that was wonderful. Right. And she told me that they, uh, they would, they would uh, watch movies at night. And so she bought a big, big screen TV and surround sound speakers and the speaker wire just kind of trailed across the floor to the speaker. She never did like put it under the carpet. Yeah. It's like when the lights are off and the movie's playing, you can't see it. That's right. That's right. And if your love, if your love interest has his arms around you, you can't see anything. I mean, you know, she was blissful. Oh yeah. And then they would set the uh, alarm for 30 minutes early every morning so that they could snuggle before she went to work. Yeah. It was, it was beautiful. That's a good one. That's that one's pretty inventive. And she said before she went to work, and I said, doesn't he go to work? And that's when she told me that he had priors and that none of them hurt anybody. You know, he'd test driven a pickup and never brought it back. He did what now? He had, he test drove a pickup and didn't bring it back. Oh, test drove. He, uh, 
had okay. some DUIs. He had some financial, you know, writing checks on accounts that weren't his. Okay. He had done time and he couldn't get a job. Prison time or, or county time, county jail? Three prison terms. Oh, okay. State prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he couldn't get a job. And so she had financed a, a dually, like a giant pickup truck with a utility trailer and ladders and tarps and sprayers and anything he would need to set up a home painting business. Mm-hmm. $60,000. He was into her for 60000 And this is what, 20 years ago, maybe? Yeah. So 60 is a lot she was today. A, an, yes. Exactly. She's a lot more than. Yeah, she was a um, kind of an executive secretary. So she wasn't making. She wasn't killing it, but she was making some money. Right. Yeah. But I mean, there was some question whether she would qualify for the mortgage. So, I mean, she wasn't making bank. Yeah. Um, Yes. Right. Sure. And sometimes he would do weird stuff um, like. He drove off and crashed, and she found him in jail three days later because he had driven absolutely plastered. My mom called one time and asked for Amy, and the guy said, he said, uh, she's not here. I chopped her up and buried her in the backyard. Ugh, bizarre sense of humor. And you would think that we'd all rush down there. Yeah, but, it, you know. Our country makes violent jokes all the time. Well, that's true. I know. I mean, all the time. I had to punch you. I had to smack you, you know? Yeah. I mean, when you hear those things or I hear those things like he's a real backstabber. You really hear it differently. It's not funny. Changes once you've really been around that type of thing. No, it's like I never really pictured it so clearly until knowing someone that had that happen. I mean, we make jokes about it all the time. So anyway, Amy, Amy had had cancer mm-hmm. some years prior. And when she had cancer, her, her family just deluged her. One would come in for a week and then the next one for a week. And we were always there for her. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. But so when we were as a family discussing his quote unquote sense of humor, we were like, well, Amy would call. Amy would call and we would come if she needs us. You know, we will be on the next plane, and she knows it. Right. So that kept us from like dashing in when mm. he made these bad jokes. It's funny because she and I talked about the straw that broke the camel's back for me. So it, it's super trivial because you know you've heard all these mm-hmm. really horrible things, and what happened was I was invited back to speak at my alma mater, and. What was the subject that you were coming back to speak about? So I was a freelance magazine writer at the time, and I was traveling all over the place writing interesting stories. And I was on a panel of four freelancers. And so you got a bunch of young college students, and you have four freelancers up here telling about the great stuff, you know, that being paid to go eat. I got paid to eat a lot in, you know, go write about the best food in Seattle. Go write about the best food in Boston. I mean, it was great. What a nice gig. Go ahead. It was. It was It was awesome. I love it. So there were four of us, right? And there was this guy I knew, and then this woman I knew, and me and this guy I didn't know. Okay. And he was good looking. That's that's bad. So I was trying very hard to evade him. Don't look at him. Right. Yeah. 
don't look at him and don't notice he's not wearing a wedding ring, which you did notice. And therefore you have cheated. I mean, it was ridiculous. And so then I go home and I am levitating because as soon as we were done talking, the college students stormed the stage, you know, because it sounds like fun. They want to. Yeah, they want to do this. It sounds great. Yeah, I want to be you when I grow up. Exactly, which is what I said to my husband. I said I was funny. They want to be me when they grow up. And he said, you met a man. Ugh, interpretation. And I realized I had met a man. I'd met that guy. Mm -hmm. And immediately after that, I thought, this is crazy. And I called Amy. And she said, I've been telling you. And I said, I know. But but I'm ready now. Now I'm ready. And so that's one mm -hmm. thing people need to understand mm -hmm. about abusive relationships, that you need to stay present and hear the stories over and over again. And then you need to be present when the person is finally ready to break free. That's great advice. That's super, really great advice. Thank you. Yeah, because if you take the attitude that, you know, tough love, basically, if you keep going out with that bozo, I'm not, I don't want to hear the stories anymore. I'm, I'm out of here. Right. Yeah, then you've helped the abuser isolate the victim further. Yeah, that's one less person. Right. One less person to call upon. And one less person exactly. can provide perspective. Oh, for Pete's sake. You know, you didn't get on NPR because you got great legs, okay? You got on NPR because you gave them a story idea they liked. Yeah, but you need other people to give you that. Yes, of course. You need that one person, right? Like you said, the clarifier. The one person who sees through it all and says, no, 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 no. Right, exactly, exactly. And they say it in a way that you can hear Let it. Let me tell you where you're right. Let me tell you where yeah. you might be wrong. So I ended my marriage, and it was May 4th of the year, that year. And Amy took my ugly cry calls. <laughs> and I had this enormous house, and I'm a freelance magazine writer, and I have a three-year-old child. So I am absolutely terrified, but I am also absolutely free. Yes. What a wonderful feeling. So, yeah. But when people get out of a, an abusive relationship, money is a real issue. So is the simple logistics. You know, I've got a three-year-old. When am I going to work? She's got to be somewhere else if I, for me to work, you know? And so when you say to somebody, why don't you leave? I mean, yes. there is a pile of reasons not to leave. It's hard to leave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. And then also while you're trying to leave, they're reeling you back in. You know, they come back with the makeup sex or the flowers or the, you know, mm -hmm. gift or the. That never happened before. It never happened before I met you. Mm -hmm. I promise you, you can have this, you can have that. You want a dog, whatever you want, it's yours. Right. If you want a full career, you can have a full career. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mm -hmm. won't stand in the way anymore. Right. Yeah. So that was May 4th. And Amy and I, we talked about my divorce. We talked about my kid. We talked about movies. We talked about politics. We talked about everything in the world. Then on the 4th of July, I called her and she was baking bread. I'd gotten her a bread maker when she had cancer because her mouth was all ground up by the radiation. And so she couldn't eat much and nice, soft, fresh bread she could eat. So I'd gotten her a bread maker. So she's baking bread and she's planting flowers out in front of her new place and she's happy. And I said, are you going to, uh, are you and he going to go watch the fireworks? 
this is still the cowboy? Yep. I mean, what do you call a fake cowboy? <laughs> I asked her if they were going to watch fireworks. And she chuckled and she said, we're going to make our own fireworks. And, you know, we laughed. Ah, okay. And she said, I love you. And we hung up the phone. Sure, that sounds good. Four days later, my big sister called and asked, you know, have you heard from Amy? She hasn't been to work in four days. And I said, he killed her. Yeah. That's the first thing you thought of. Yeah. yeah. And my sister said, I know, but we can't think that. Because if we think it, it could be true. Uh, yeah, right. Um, and it wasn't yeah. true. I mean, her car was gone. So she was on her way. She was on her way to me or to Jane or to Steve or to my mom or grandma. She's on her way to somebody. And we're on the phone. We're calling each other. Did she get there? Did she get there? You know, and then it got kind of like she should have been here by now. Right. Doesn't take that long to drive there. Yeah. And then they found her car. And then they found a note taped to the inside of her desk drawer at work. And it was addressed to the uh, Knox County Sheriff's Department. And it said, if I am missing or dead, pick up Ron Ball. And Ron Ball was the live-in boyfriend. And it described the debts. And it like talked about their fights. And it included the sentence, I hope someday to find this and think it's funny. But if I don't, don't let him get away with it. I remember that. And of course, when I am missing or dead is the title of your book. Wasn't it the case where they were, wasn't it like they were, they thought she was not coming back. So they were clearing out her desk drawers and things. Wasn't that the case? No, this was, no, this was them, uh, basically where the hell is Amy? And the reason they got in touch with my older sister is because they flipped through my sister's, through Amy's Rolodex mm -hmm. and saw that they had the same last name. And so they called yes. her to see if she knew. Yes. And Bill, that letter that she wrote, it was dated 10 weeks before we found it. So for 10 weeks, she walked me through my divorce and we talked about trivialities and for 10 weeks, she was scared. And for 10 weeks, she didn't tell anybody. And she had not only her family who adore her, but she had really close friends. Mm -hmm. And she didn't tell anybody. Yes, that happened so often, too often. That, yeah. And since my book came out, since I've been speaking, I've had so many people say to me, oh, I've got a letter like that in the safe at work, where I mailed one to my mom and said, don't open it until you need to. First of all, as a mother... I'm opening the I'm opening the letter immediately. Yes. Immediately, I will steam it open and pretend I didn't. But mm -hmm. by God, I'm going to make sure you're okay. Yeah, yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's just totally devastating, heartbreaking. God bless you. Yeah. So it's just to have someone that close to you in your life ripped away from you like that under those circumstances. Everything. So you yeah. mean, what do you do with that type of thing? Well, so the first thing that happened is we all rushed down there. You know, and they sent up helicopters and they sent out search dogs and we were there and the TV cameras followed us everywhere. And the Kimberly Clark Corporation let a, her coworkers off work and they just plastered the town with, have you seen Amy posters? Like just plastered them so that my mom had to pull her baby's face out of the way to go into a deli. I mean, it was everywhere. And, I, and, the, and the, the TV cameras were following us. And so our behavior was also being monitored. Oh. It was 
it was one of the most horrifying times in my life. And then my um, husband called and he said, I know you think what you're doing is important, but you have to come take care of this kid. And I did, I had to go back and take care of my three-year-old and I had to run my business or else I was gonna lose my house. And my sister wasn't around. And every time I'd gone through something hard, I had called Amy and I'd called Amy and I'd called Amy and Amy wasn't answering her phone. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just a horrible time. Everything that supported you is gone. Yeah, and I, and I was going through my divorce and my family couldn't mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. support me in my divorce because Amy's disappearance was way more important. Sure. 100%. You know, I mean, it's permanent. It's ir you yeah. Um and I remember I was a Monday when mom called and said that they'd found Amy and we all went flying back down there and they had to it, she'd been underground for long enough that they needed to use dental records. So we had to wait in Knoxville while they went to get the dental records. And um, it was Amy. She was rolled up in a painter's tarp and tied with speaker wire and buried at a construction site. Yeah. Hideous, hideous, just, just horror. So like you, that sense of it being abstract and something that happened to other people that just gets blown out of the water. Doesn't it? Sure does. The club, nobody wants to join. Yes. But once you're in the club, you love all the other people who are in it with you immediately because that is a brother and sisterhood. That is very, very special. And it comes with, I feel lots of opportunities and lots of responsibilities and, and I would never want to be in that club, but I'm in it. And like you, making the most of it, really, every single day. I say in presentations, I didn't save Amy. So I wrote a book to try to save other Amys. Yeah, I can identify. Stop the next Kristen, the next Amy. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's... Yes. I, I said back in the beginning, because all of this happened in 2005, after we had just done a few things, that if just one person made it out somehow that whatever effort we had put in would always be worth it. And you can't prove it that anybody made it out about anything you wrote or said, you know, all the presentations you've given and I've given, and I've given a lot fewer than you, but I've been told that there are people out there who claim to me that I'm alive today because I paid attention to what you and your family had to say. You can't prove it, but, but it's a nice thought. Hearing you say that gives me goosebumps and makes me feel emotional because when somebody says that to me, I too believe that I was probably the right message right when they were ready to hear it. Yes. You know, so I can't take like massive credit, but I will take that little tiny catalyst credit. Yes. You know, thank God that you heard me. Yeah. And you heard me, you paid attention and you followed up. Someone told me a long time ago, get out there and talk about this frequently enough so that you'll eventually catch someone, someone who's at the tipping point, who just needed to hear that one thing. And I had someone who wrote me one time. I had given a speech at my daughter's university, and this person was in the last semester of her freshman year, had been dating a guy for about a year. And she wrote to me and said that somewhere in the middle of my speech, she decided for sure that she was done with this guy. Oh. And... She had heard enough. She saw herself in the speech and really couldn't wait to tell her mother, who never liked this guy, didn't care for him, thought he was 
bad news, unhealthy, and couldn't wait to tell her mother that she was done with this guy. That must have been so gratifying. Yeah. Someone once said to me, that's your superpower. And it's the same thing for all of us that do that. And just one other thing as we run down this tangent is that they will listen to you. They will listen to me. Someone will sit there quietly and listen to someone who has been there like you and I have, and they will sit with rapt attention. I have experienced it. I'm sure you have too. And in your case, actually having happened to you directly, to you, the person, I mean, I would listen to you even if I didn't know that something like this was coming my way. It would stop my breathing. I would listen to you because I know that I'm listening to someone who, by all rights, wouldn't even be here, possibly. That could have been it for you if that guy had just kept it coming, kicking you, doing all these things. You know, something that I would like to acknowledge is how hard it is to break the pattern. If high drama love is what love looks like for you, then the mellow, calm, respectful love that is healthy doesn't look like love. What do you mean you're not jealous? What do you mean you don't care if I talk to another man? What do you mean if that you're happy that I'm dancing with somebody else? How can that possibly be love? When in truth, if dancing makes me happy and he doesn't want to dance, then he should be thrilled that I'm dancing because it makes me happy. That's what love is. Yes. Love isn't you doing what I'd like you to do. Love is you doing what you want to do. Yes. And me being your, your, you know, your biggest supporter while you do it, as long as it's not just, you know, destructive in some way. You know, you mentioned fear earlier. And I remember the line that, that love is the absence of fear. So someone who's listening to this and thinks I am very fearful of this person most of the time, it isn't love. It's just not by definition. Right. So the way I got out, by the way, or the way I broke my pattern. Oh. Because remember, you know, you're doing the grand Alaman right and left through life where your guy beats you up and another guy is really kind to you. And so you fall for that person. I took what I call a dating sabbatical. Yes. And it was sustained. I mean, I had consciously, excuse me, I consciously said, you know, it will be six months and I will not date anybody. And in that six months, I figured out what I really like to do. I discovered that I am funny. My laugh does not sound like a hyena that people want to be around me, that I am content in my own skin, in my own company, making my own decisions about my life, wearing my jeans and my hoodie, no more stilettos and all that garbage. And then when I entered into the next relationship, I entered it from a position of centered wholeness. I didn't need him to fulfill me. So we were both healthy and we kind of leaned toward each other. Nobody was leaning over the other one, you know, being dominant and running the show. And I, you know, what, we're about to go into, you know, a family gathering time. And I guarantee you, somebody's going to say, well, why aren't you married yet? Why are you alone? As if being alone is a bad thing. And you evolved to this place. Yeah. Is the way I look at it. Yeah. My favorite response to why aren't you married yet is just lucky, I guess. You got there the roughest way possible. I mean, I know there are a lot of great marriages. I don't mean to disparage those. I just feel like the expectation that you must be with someone in order to have value needs to be, we need to confront that. I'll say this to any of your younger audience members, being middle-aged rocks. What kind of things are you doing nowadays? I know you were, you were working with the military. What were you doing with them? You were giving presentations? Yes. I was literally flying around the world. Um, I slept in a shipping container in Djibouti, for example. 
So who set up those arrangements for you? You didn't request those, did you? I accepted it as part of the part of the package. That was the Atlantic Fleet of the United States Navy. I have since also spoken to the Air Force and the Army, and of course I've spoken to a ton of Marines. And then universities, Major League Baseball, because Major League Baseball, like a specific team, you mean? Pittsburgh Pirates. Really? Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're around these military guys, I guess it really is mostly guys in the audience, or you're speaking to a professional baseball team with grown-up men, how are they accepting this message that you were walking in with? Because you could be going in there and you're trying to talk about your learned version of how people should act with each other and what an equal or healthy relationship should be like and look like. And there are going to be a lot of people in that group, and they might think it's pretty far from the way that they, they see it. So... How did that go over? It's pretty far from the way a lot of them have seen it. You know, they've seen this modeling at home that is one person dominating over another person and be degrading the other person. So my favorite ones were the submariners because apparently that's a particularly macho group. And so, you know, their arms are crossed and their legs are crossed and they're not going to listen to me because, you know, you're just this woman who hates men. So I'm always gender neutral. I use, should your sweetheart be able to go through your phone? I never say girlfriend or boyfriend. I also try not to be heteronormative because abuse happens in same-sex relationships also. Try really hard to front load with an example of female on male abuse so that they are listening with the mindset that I am talking, that I recognize both sides and I'm talking about both sides. But I also firmly believe, like universities will bring me in to talk to sororities. And I'm like, no, I need to talk to the fraternities too. Because fraternity members are victims, some. Fraternity members are perpetrators, some of them. And if they don't know the difference between healthy and unhealthy behavior, then how are we going to hold them to a standard? And so when I talk to the military, which is 85% male, I front load it to try to get them to understand that I'm talking to them, not about them. Yes, because your talks and mine can fall into, let me get up and talk with you for 45 minutes to an hour yeah, and possibly demonize everybody I'm talking with. Yeah, right. Exactly. No, it doesn't fly. And another, uh, I'm going to call it a trick, but I don't mean it in a negatively manipulative way I use is I watched the guy five rows up on the end, not always the same guy, but you know, something like that. I have somebody in mind. And when they start to emote, I say something funny because If they are in a position that they can't emote in front of their peers, they are going to stop listening to me. They're going to essentially put their fingers in their ears and say, la, 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 la. They're going to cross their arms. They're not going to listen to me. So I say something funny. I bring everybody back up. Now they've laughed for a moment and then I take them back down. But in that moment, I've allowed that person to reset so that they can hear me again. Because we have these stupid macho rules that say men can't show emotion. I mean, you can show anger and you can show happiness, but don't show me loneliness or sadness or, you know, it's, it's getting better. The younger generations are far better at it. Do you remember Speaker John Boehner in the U.S. House? Uh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. He was put down as being a big crier. Yeah, he was a weeper and people mocked him for it. Yes, they Well, did. I got to tell you that if you mock John Boehner, then the young person in your life is not going to come to you and show you emotion. Mm-hmm. It's like if you make fun of gay people, then then your nephew's never going to come confess to you that he's gay. Yes, that's right. Yeah. 
yes, you've already stigmatized mm-hmm. that person that way. I'm going to condemn that. And so I'm just going to, while I'm around you, I'm going to yep. act a whole different way. And I don't have to take the blowback, right? Yes. And so your relationship with your other sister, because so much was about Amy, tell me about your other sister and your relationship. Your relationship, what she have going on in life, if you want to talk about those. I have multiple siblings. Okay. And it's uh, quite interesting. When we came out of this, I became a public speaker and an author. My brother took over his regional United Way and steered as much of the fundraising as possible to domestic violence shelters. My sister in Montana started pretty much an underground railroad because it's hard to have a shelter out there because everybody knows, you know, it's the population scattered. Yes. So any one house, everybody knows what's happening in that house. So you can't have a private shelter plus transportation because of the population being so scattered is a challenge. And so she started working in that. And then she morphed from that into working for providing services for unhomed people. So, I mean, each of us has taken this, this tragedy and tried to make the world a better place somehow. You definitely have all put your arms around something. And, you know, a lot of families would have a horrible thing like this happen in their lives. They just want to think about pleasant things, positive things. They want to go on trips. They want to get away as far as possible. It's not that you shouldn't do a lot of those other things, of course. You do have to have a life, too. And we say this often at this house. What would Kristen want you to be doing? She'd probably want you to be helping other young women or people who were dealing with domestic violence. She'd also want you to have a life and be enjoying yourself. And we believe in this house that we will meet up with her again one day, and it'll be glorious. We just have to wait a while. We'll catch up. And I'm sure your sister's looking at it like you and your siblings have really embraced this and in great ways, kind of like the Underground Railroad of helping people get away from abusive people, abusive worlds. And and it's just so admirable. My mom stopped telling her friends about her kids because she said they said that she was lying. Because, <laughs> you know, because this one's out doing this this good thing. And this one's doing that good thing, you know. So eventually she sounded like she was bragging and (laughs) she stopped talking about us. I went into this talk we're having feeling so good about you already. And then now I get to feel even better about you and your siblings. Just all the things that you're doing. And it's just, just great. It's an honor. It's an honor. Just like you know this too. It's an honor to be able to do something with this pain. I'll tell you something different in my house from your house is there are ornaments on my Christmas tree that are, well, this may be same in your house, that Amy either made or gave to us. And it's such a glorious opportunity to tell stories about her. Oh my God, this is from when she was in her quilting phase or this was in her, you know, and laugh laugh about her, you know, because we had a lot of really, really, I'm grateful for all the years we had with her. We do the same thing. I mean, there were Kristen's ornaments from baby's first Christmas to the ones that she made in elementary school, made by little hands that were very innocent and didn't know very well how to work a pair of scissors, as she learned later. Maybe the glue showed a little, and all those things that make them so precious and innocent and wonderful. At the top of the tree, we put an angel that's glorious and looks remarkably like her, like Kristen. We bring Kristen out all year long. Nice. But we really bring her out at, at the end of the year, at the holiday season. How long ago did she die? She died June 3rd, 2005. Man, that's amazing. I know. 
if someone came up to me and said, don't think too hard, how many years, maybe five years, mm -hmm. feels very recent to me. Right. Very fresh, unfortunately. Do you have other children? Her brother, David, who is four years younger than she was, he's now 35. Okay. Nice. Janine, I can't imagine anyone with more depth measured by experience in the areas of sexual assault or intimate partner violence. You have seen it. You have experienced it. You have felt what it does to others and to yourself, and you've managed to find ways to use what you've lived and turned it into getting innocent women and men, I'm sure, too. We didn't talk too much about that going that way, but and getting them from the stranglehold of horribly unhealthy relationships. Those things you told me today, what people do to other people that, that at times they claim they have loved, it's just jaw-dropping. Your story is yours, but it's also, I have to add to it, the hundreds of stories that you have embraced, they are all really part of your story, and you've made their lives better. So thank you for giving us the, the gift of peace and love and better lives. I appreciate this so much, and having this time with you has been so rewarding for me. I just want to thank you. I'd love to be able to call upon you sometime and do more of this. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It was a good conversation, too. Let's be in touch. Keep doing the good work. Yeah. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I'd like to thank my guests and my listening audience for their support. It is clear our listeners look for and play Survivor episodes above all others. They get caught up between the forces of good and evil. All the time pulling for the moment a victim becomes a survivor. I am open to other victims and survivors who want to join with me on the When Dating Hurts podcast. We can shine a bright light on the epidemic of dating and domestic violence. We can improve lives and save some innocent people from a lifetime of broken dreams. If you want to tell your victim or survivor story, please contact me at BillMitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. That's BillMitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com.